I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. If you've had the opportunity to work with or meet Michelle Cassandra Johnson, I don't have to say any more. She is one of those rare spiritual beings who touches everyone she meets with her gentle but very clear presence. She is to me a master at holding both and, the ability to acknowledge and put into perspective both the physical realities of this world and our manifestation in it, and our spiritual natures. She captures what it means to be both whole and complete and striving to grow. Michelle Cassandra Johnson is an author, yoga teacher, social justice activist, intuitive healer, and dismantling racism trainer. She approaches her life and work from a place of empowerment, embodiment, and integration. As a dismantling racism trainer, she has worked with large corporations, nonprofits, and community groups. She published Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World in 2017, and the second edition came out with Shambhala Publication in 2021. Her latest book, Finding Refuge, Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief, published by Shambhala Publications, came out also in 2021, and she has another book coming out, We Heal Together, Rituals and Practices for Building Community and Connection, which is now available for pre-order. Michelle created the Finding Refuge podcast in 2020, which explores collective grief and liberation and serves as a reminder about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. And you can look forward to me being on that in a couple months. Whether in an anti-oppression training, yoga space, individual or group intuitive healing session, the heart, healing, and wholeness are at the center of how Michelle approaches all her work. In this episode, we discuss the need to grieve, the importance of connecting with our ancestors, even and especially if that is difficult, mourning rituals, boundaries, and of course, her honeybees. Michelle has believed in me for a while, and that means something really major to me. Her team has facilitated trainings for Three and a Half Acres Yoga, my nonprofit, and she wrote the forward for my forthcoming book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, which is just such an unspeakable honor. I'm looking forward to bringing you this interview and to future collaborations with Michelle in 2023. There we go. Actually, Michelle, I thought it might be appropriate if you're okay with it, to start potentially setting some community agreements around conversation. Does that seem right? Yeah. I think my question is, have you created some with other guests or with your intention of the show? Are there some 
agreements that feel important, just given the conversations you've had thus far? Yeah, thank you for that great question. One of the common questions that I'll ask guests at the beginning of the show is if they're feeling resourced and really open to talking about trauma, and if there are things that they do or don't want to talk about. So I think it's important for folks to be in choice and not feel because we've agreed to show up today and have this conversation that implies that there's anything that they have to specifically share. Yeah, I think that is an important practice around consent and that that changes moment to moment. And for me personally, I am happy to share about anything as I sort of anticipate the conversation that we'll have. And I know that if there's something I don't want to talk about, I'll I'll let you know. So I feel fine right now with seeing where things go and nothing is coming into my awareness that I am like, no, don't ask about that. Let's not talk about that. Great. Yeah. I felt, I guess, inclined to kind of lead that way because you're the person that I think brought community agreements into my awareness and something that I've used with teaching yoga informed trauma teachers since then and that some of your facilitators have used when they've come to teach for some of my trainings, which has been wonderful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, agreements are such an important practice and they're part of every facilitation I lead and sometimes I'll share some and sometimes the group will come up with agreements. And I would say in general, the agreements focused on speaking from our own experience with an awareness that we have different lived experiences that inform our worldview and perspective. This is a podcast, so it's different, but in a group space, often there's an agreement about confidentiality and there are agreements about whatever we are going to talk about will be an ongoing conversation and we probably won't get to everything. So often there's an agreement about non-closure, which mirrors the practice yoga in so many ways and life, I feel like in so many ways, there's usually an agreement about listening to understand and more. Those are just some that come to the surface right now. And I feel like they're part of what builds the container for the practice and work to happen. I definitely agree. Using those really been helpful for me. That last one that life won't necessarily probably won't be tied up in a a little bow and everything's resolved at the end of a group coming together is a good one that I've used and I try to keep in the forefront of my mind. It also takes the pressure off, which I think is can be helpful. Yeah, I do too. I agree. So maybe we can start with asking you about your definition of trauma. You speak a lot about different kinds of trauma in your books, like ancestral trauma and also ancestral wisdom. I would love to get your take on sort of an overarching framework for trauma and then maybe these different kinds that folks can experience. Yeah, most of my understanding of trauma, of course, came from my own experiences with trauma in my life, but also I was a clinical social worker for 20 years working with people individually, but also in group process and practice. 
in response to the trauma they had experienced. Then I was a clinical social worker before I actually became a yoga teacher. And then that path of social work led me in so many ways to explore the path of yoga and to more fully integrate the body and mind and come into alignment, which I, I feel like is healing and can be one of the ways that we respond to trauma and begin to build resilience and try to heal. And something that I've thought about for a long time, given my work as a clinical social worker, I'm also a racial equity dismantling racism trainer in rooms with many people who are reckoning with history and reliving trauma or learning about trauma for the first time, collective trauma that we've experienced because of systems like white supremacy. I began to think about cultural trauma, what that is, the experience of our consciousness shifting as a collective because of what we are experiencing. And COVID-19 is a really good example of this, horrific example, but it really illustrates how many of us, if not us all, we had to rearrange how we were. We continue, I feel like I'm in conversation with people all the time who are continuing to sort of figure out how much to socially distance or isolate and when to go out and if they're practicing wearing a mask, when to do that, when not to do that. Do I send my children to school? Do I keep them at home? I had never, I guess, consciously experienced something like COVID-19 before it began. And it really sort of shifted my lens around, okay, we are having a global experience that is deeply traumatic to us all, but affecting us differently. And this is going to change how we think, the psyche, how we move the body, like physically, how we grieve or not grieve, because so much of what happened during the height of COVID was that people weren't able to engage in practices and rituals for healing in response to the trauma they'd experienced because they'd lost someone to COVID, right? Like everything, I feel like, do we go into the office and work? Do we stay at home? Like if we're an essential worker, we don't have that option. We have to go and interact with people and it's unsafe. As I mentioned, horrific example of cultural trauma and the impact it has on us as a group. It's nuanced because, for example, I did not personally lose anyone to COVID that I'm aware of, that I know, but I have friends who did. All the things I just named directly affected my psyche, the way I moved in the world. I stopped traveling, anxiety I had about what was going on, the not knowing my relationship with uncertainty, right? All of that, I was affected by each one of these things. And people who've lost a person, many people have children, right? So I wasn't contemplating, what do I do? And I have to be at home and work and teach this child. Like I wasn't in that space. Like that, it's nuanced because we're having different experiences of this trauma. So that's the like cultural trauma. And the way I think about trauma in general is the different ways in which we're thrown off balance or disrupted. And this disruption affects the nervous system and we have a response to it, which can be conditioned if we're exposed to or experiencing repetitive trauma. And also we live in a world that's highly reactive, which I think the landscape is deeply traumatic. All that's going on and the way we receive information and the the way we share information, right? And so I think of trauma as like, as I said, the ways in which we're thrown off balance and disrupted. And then what I understand is the body tries to move back into balance. The nervous system tries to cope and move back into balance. I feel like our systems are designed to do that. I also want to name that the amount of trauma that we've experienced in the last two and a half years, 
I don't actually know if the nervous system was designed to respond to daily trauma in that way. And I recognize as I speak about this, there are people living in war zones right now and many people who have historically who experience daily trauma bombs falling out of the sky, right? Like losing loved ones. So I do think there are many examples of this. I just had not had one in my own life related to cultural trauma this collective imbalance that was happening. I mean, there's so much we could talk about, but that's yeah. some of that how I'm thinking about trauma. Yeah. That, a couple questions came to my mind. Perhaps we can kind of like go each way. You can choose your own adventure, choose which way feels right to head first. I mean, my one question is just your reflection thoughts on where we are now as a, a world or a culture, like in the coming back to homeostasis. And I guess many of us are in different places around this collective COVID trauma. Do we know where we are? And then the other part just came to my mind about where you reflected on just the barrage of sort of information and things that are asked of us on the day-to-day in this society that we're living in in this time. You seem to have some really great practices, Michelle, around boundaries. And I know you recently took sabbatical. You have a really lovely email response. (laughs) And I just thought it might be useful for myself and for the listeners to just hear more from you about how you've been able to like establish that really beautiful, I want to say like protection for yourself and just some more reflections on that. I'll speak to where we are now, which is, I don't know, with homeostasis, I don't know where we are. Part of me resists trying to like actually hone in on where we are because everything has been disrupted. And I don't just mean COVID, like we were disrupted prior to COVID and then have this massive experience that was ongoing that I imagine went on, has gone on for much longer than anyone anticipated. From what I'm sort of witnessing from my space, my lived experience, I've traveled a couple of times during COVID, but not that much. But I'm curious about what folks are thinking and if people feel like we're through this, like it's done. And even if people believe that we're coming back into homeostasis related to health and perhaps decreased risk of contracting COVID, which I'm not saying that's true, but like, I think people believe that based on the actions I'm witnessing people take and the interact, like how we're interacting with one another. I am thinking about the aftermath. Like, even if we are through the worst part, what we feel like was the worst part of the trauma, there is the recovery from that. And I feel like capitalism and many systems of oppression distract us from the time that we actually need to take to recover. And I feel like we're going to be in recovery from COVID and the multiple pandemics and the like consciousness that was shifted during that time and the awakenings that happened over the last two and a half years. I feel like we're going to be in recovery for such a long time and we'll need to recover from things that we don't even know. Like I don't understand who I am at this moment in time. I do as a spiritual being, but as a human on the planet this time, I don't completely understand who I am because of what we've just gone through and I haven't fully integrated it nor digested it. Oh, I really appreciate that raw honesty. And I'm there with you. I'm really there with you. And part of that is, I mean, it just takes time. I also believe that healing and integration can happen in a moment, but also in my experience, it just 
it can take time to digest and metabolize change like this. And also like all the craziness of life makes it really hard to. I'm with you. I still feel kind of dizzy and floating in space about who I am. And, and I'm wondering, even as I ask the question, like, is it about healing and recovering or is it about like breaking into something new and better, which is different? I don't know. Something in me is saying there's no going back. Yeah. I don't think we can go back to where we were before. And yet I think the tendency, this is what I feel like I'm witnessing as I'm around others. I don't actually think we can go back. I don't even feel really the urge other than my desire to connect with people with ease and not say, can you take a COVID test before you come over? Right? Like I don't want that tension anymore, but I don't want to rush into, I mean, it's a delusion to feel like we can go back because to your point, we haven't metabolized what just happened. And capitalism and productivity would say, go back, believe that we can go back to the way we were so you can get to work and you can feed this capitalist machine. Like that is part of what's going on. Believe we can go back to the way we were pre-COVID. And I mentioned multiple pandemics when so many folks were not awakened, even though we had thousands, if not more acts of violence against Brown and black folks. Like when so many white bodied folks woke up in the middle of COVID when George Floyd was murdered, right? Like, I think there's a tendency to go back and be like, but that didn't happen Mm. or things are better now, or we've made strides. And it's like, we haven't recovered from that either. I also think about like the cultural trauma. I am black. I am not Asian, but I remember the hate crimes that happened and the increase in hate crimes across the globe against Asian folks when COVID emerged and when political leaders were saying, you know, blaming folks of Asian descent for this virus, right? Like we can't, that revealed something to us and we actually don't need to go back (laughs) to how things were before. We actually need to reckon with where we are now, the truths that have been uplifted, I'll say, because I think they were already present, but uplifted and perhaps revealed to some, like we need to work with this to, I think, heal collectively. And I also think healing doesn't mean we go back to the state we were in before. Homeostasis is going back into balance, but we were actually imbalanced pre-COVID. We're even more imbalanced now. And so we're really, I'm thinking about healing as a way of coming into balance and disrupting all of the systems and patterns that are toxic that sort of move us away from who we truly are. Mm. Yeah. And our true nature. Yeah. Such a good point. When we get diluted into, not that you were, I'll say for like what I see, right? Like most folks and especially white bodied folks diluted into thinking that something's in balance, which isn't right. And then that feeling that felt okay, maybe shouldn't have. So I think there's a feeling of, wow, now I don't feel okay. And I have to deal with that. And that feels out of balance, but actually that's where I should be feeling. (laughs) That makes sense. It does. Like, I feel like more people are, and I remember an article came out, perhaps it was in the New York Times. I don't remember, but I remember an article came out maybe a year, nine months or a year into COVID. And it was about grief. And like, I can't remember the title, but it was like, what you're feeling is grief, Mm -hmm. you know? And it spoke to the dynamic you just named of like, it wasn't actually okay before. And now you're noticing it more because of what's happening right now with COVID and multiple pandemics. And there's dissonance there. 
And that's exactly where we need to be, I think, to transform and come back into balance is what I think. The article didn't say that, but I remember it being like, oh, someone's naming this as Greek, like the fogginess that I can't concentrate, the PTSD, the anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. That people may not have experienced before. They were really connecting it to the moment, cultural trauma and the grief. And like, that's actually what we need to feel and be able to move through. Yeah. Grief is a really important piece. And I even had that down to ask you about, because I think it's generally something that we avoid, especially I feel like Americans, we're not really taught to how to grieve, given space to grieve. And I feel like this is an area that you speak about quite eloquently, and maybe you can share some insights. I'll speak to that. And I know you asked a question about practices and I can speak to that as well. And this, they feel connected um, and boundaries and just sort of creating protected space amid all the things we've named. I feel like my experience of trauma, cultural trauma, personal trauma, these experiences led me to really contemplating the ways in which I was able to grieve, conditioned to grieve in the ways I was not and how I saw that playing out collectively and how that had become institutionalized. For example, in my family, when I would be upset about something or I wasn't even necessarily aware that I was grieving something, but perhaps something had changed or I didn't get an opportunity where I actually lost a family member. I feel like I was encouraged to acknowledge what was happening. So the transition, the shift, the loss. And I was not necessarily encouraged to process it. Yes, you didn't get on that sports team, Michelle, which for 13-year-old Michelle was like devastating because I also wanted to fit in in my school. I was one of the only Black girls in my school. I was trying to figure out who I was at that age. I was trying to be connected to peers. So it wasn't just about the missed opportunity. For me, identity was wrapped up in that and all the ways I felt isolated from my peers because many of them are white-bodied and wealthy and I was not black and not wealthy. And I feel like, so I was encouraged to acknowledge that experience, but not be sad about it, not take time to process it, not to really talk about it other than acknowledging it. I feel like there's some good reason for that. My mom was taking care of me and my brother as a single parent with loads of grief in her heart and experience. And she also is someone who had to keep moving had to keep going. Mm -hmm. There was no one else who was going to do the things that we needed done, right, to be cared for. And she knew she had to do it and she was working full time and she was stressed. And so I understand that I'm at, this is no judgment. I mean, my mother is so dear to me, like no judgment. Like I can look at it now and be like, oh, you had to keep going. And that was your coping strategy. And you were teaching me to do that too. And you also understood that the world would encourage me to do that. And that actually in a black body, there would be no time for my grief and that it wouldn't even be validated as real, right? Or recognized. And so there's kind of that experience personally and the ways I've seen this show up culturally, institutionally is what I mean, and cultural norms that are based on a hierarchy of bodies is that in institutions, we have policies in place that only allow people to grieve for a certain amount of time. We have policies in place that only allow people to take bereavement leave in response to specific losses. And I am kind of like the world is imploding and we're likely all feeling grief right now and loss personally and collectively, whether or not we know it. And we need to broaden our perspective around 
what is valid when we think about grief, what is valid to grieve. And we also need to gain some clarity about the fact that grief is an ongoing process. It is part of being human. It is part of being alive. We will all experience loss. We are all going to die. Like it's, this is part of what, and there's fear around even talking about that for people, but this is part of what it means to be in the human experience. And yet we have institutional practices that don't actually honor the human experience, which includes having space to grieve and acknowledge loss. And then I think that shows up in cultural norms too, around whose grief, as I mentioned a moment ago, is valid. I think about communities who are less proximal to power and historically in present day, the ways they've organized to speak about what they've lost or what's been taken away. And dominant culture has said, that's not real and that's not happening. And we're not going to listen to you. And I often, I say, I think communities are grieving out loud. Like we're tired of power being taken away. We're tired of losing people. Many of us are tired of watching what is happening to the planet (laughs) and people sort of like not paying any attention to the fact that record temperatures were in the West last week, like 114 degrees. That is not normal. There's nothing about that that's normal, right? A third of Pakistan being underwater, not normal. (laughs) Like none of this is normal and, and makes sense. And yet when I say cultural, I am talking about dominant culture, which is connected to a hierarchy of bodies, as I mentioned earlier, and a hierarchy of the body over the planet as well, in that some people are valued and some people are not, right? And some people are seen as normal and some are not. I'm not talking about people's individual cultural practices they may have around grief, which they may have maintained. But in my experience in America, which is where I have been for the whole of my life, there is discouragement from actually grieving out loud and from speaking the truth about what we're losing. And if we don't have the conversation about what we're losing, we're going to keep losing and we're going to keep harming one another and the planet. Mm -hmm. This is what I believe. Yeah. That was a long answer. No, that was wonderful answer. And just in general, just (laughs) when you get on a roll, please, because we want to hear you. I'm just wondering, I think there's a fear around opening up to grief because it sometimes can feel like if we go to grief, like, It has that feeling like it'll never end if I allow myself to feel that pain, like it's just going to open up and pour out, right? I don't know if you had any, going back into kind of practices or advice around that grieving process. Yeah, Yeah. it's common. I'm glad you mentioned this because people often do report believing that if they make space to acknowledge the different ways their heart is broken or they are feeling brokenheartedness that will consume them. And for a while I was kind of like, I don't think it will. In my experience, when the floodgates have opened and often they've opened when I haven't had any other option, they've just done it. Like what was going to move through me was going to move through me. When the floodgates have opened, there's been intense pain and heartbreak and then the intensity has subsided a little, and then there may be another moment of intense heartbreak. And then the nervous system can't actually sort of sustain that level of pain and out of body, like witnessing oneself fall apart because it's going to try to, as we talked about earlier, bring us back into balance in some way. I've noticed sort of waves of intensity related to grief. And as I said, was sort of like, it won't consume you. And now I'm actually in this moment, this is a new thought. I'm really thinking about that orientation, like. What if I 
do become consumed with my heartbreak, what will happen from that place of deep awareness Mm -hmm. of how broken my heart feels because of what we as a collective are doing to one another in the planet. And I don't mean consume me to destabilize me. I just mean, what if I like go there? What if I commit to going there? And if I'm going to do that, I'm going to need some practices to support me. I will need to feel grounded so I can have moments of respite. I'm not suggesting like I'm going to sit for seven days, which I mean, maybe I will at some point, but sit for seven days and like be in the most intense part of my heartbreak and not eat and not care for myself and not interact with others, right? I'm not suggesting or to journal every day about the ways in which I'm brokenhearted. Maybe, I mean, I actually think that's a powerful practice, but I'm not suggesting that's where people start. I've had a practice of meditation, prayer, pulling from one of my Oracle decks, journaling and writing gratitude statements, the four things that I do every morning. And I've been practicing those four things since in that way, it starts with meditation, which doesn't always look the same, but prayer always comes after the meditation and then the pulling of the cards and then the journaling about the card and gratitude statement. Mm -hmm. Like I've practiced this since I think 2016, that sort of became my morning ritual and practice. Prior to that, I was practicing meditation, but I added prayer and Oracle readings and gratitude statements in 2016. And At a minimum, I have to do that practice in the morning or I am not going to be in a place where I can actually touch into my heartbreak in a way that still allows me to be grounded and connected to everything around me. And I also have other practices, movement practice, walking meditation, walking my dog, connecting with the natural world, touching the earth. I have honeybees, going to sit with the honeybees. And this can be a minute where I go out. I just did it. Actually, I went out to see the honeybees before our interview and I was out there for a minute or two minutes and I just went to see what they were doing and to connect with them. Mm. And sometimes I take Jasper on an hour long walk and sort of meander around the neighborhood. It's my walking meditation. And often that's in the morning and I watch the world wake up. I'm saying this because sometimes when we talk about practices to help us ground and then touch into the heartbreak. People feel like they need to meditate for an hour a day. And I would say for many people, that's not possible, depending on their lives and what they're doing and who they're caring for. So it might be five minutes a day to ground. And that grounding, I feel like, allows us to, at least in my experience, be more awake and attuned and connected to all things, which means I am going to touch into my heartbreak And at times I am going to feel consumed by the sheer amount of heartbreak I feel because I'm attuned and awakened to all that is not normal, all that is out of balance. So that's what I'll say about practice and grounding and heartbreak. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I really appreciate your sharing your morning practice. And so many people ask me about morning practice or morning ritual I definitely want to get to the bees. So (laughs) I'm not skipping the bees. It's just a little bookmark that I want to talk a lot about the bees. And what I see from what you're sharing with the world is your deepening connection with the bees and with the non-human natural living world. But before we get there, I would love to hear maybe a little bit more about like what sparked adding prayer and your oracle cards, if there's anything that you would like to share about that. I know that you use a lot of ancestral practice and Mm -hmm. 
wisdom, that you're really attuned to that. And I think that's something that a lot of us know about or really understand, or maybe we feel strange around talking about that sort of world. So I don't know if there's some things you can add there. I have an ancestor altar, which sits next to another altar. It's on the wall. And then there's a table with an altar where I change things depending on the moon and my mood and what I'm working on. But the ancestor altar pretty much stays the same unless I'm working with it in a specific way. And I would say that I have always, as we all have, had a connection to my ancestors. And I say we all have a connection to our ancestors because we are here because of them. Even if our connection with them feels strained or feels absent or feels complicated, my great-great-grandmother's blood is flowing through me. My great-grandfather's blood is flowing through me. The trauma they experienced in their Black bodies is housed in my body because we know that trauma is passed on ancestrally in the DNA. The patterns that sort of emerged from their trauma, the conditioned patterns, are alive in me as well. I don't know about some of them, but I know that at times I do things that don't make sense to me, that feel patterned and are likely connected to my ancestors. And the patterns that my ancestors or practices, I'll say, or rituals that my ancestors created in response to the trauma they were experiencing, that's inside me too. And what I just named is the trauma is present and inside me and the resilience and the rituals and the practices that bring me back to who I truly am are inside me as well. And those came from my ancestors. And I name this because people have all sorts of like stuff around their ancestors, particularly if they're more proximal to power. I teach in many spaces where they're mixed racially and many other identities And often white-bodied folks have a reaction to working with ancestors or are appropriating and sort of working with these rituals that are not actually connected to their lineage. Mm. And at times people don't know about their, they don't know where they're from. And so it's kind of, it can be hard to trace back, although we have a few more resources to do that now than we did even a decade ago. And there's fear about sort of reckoning with our line, right? Our bloodline. We are feeling our bloodline, whether or not we want to acknowledge it. And we're operating to some degree from that trauma and that resilience that is housed inside us from our ancestors. We're operating from those things all of the time. And we're actually reenacting, if we think about trauma, we're reenacting historical patterns with one another across lines of difference and within communities that are the same and share the same identities. We're like replicating trauma that our ancestors lived through. So I just say all of that because we're in deep relationship with our ancestors. And if people are sort of like, I don't want to go there, I would say sit with that for a while, because what is that about given that we cannot divorce ourselves from where we're from? It's not actually possible to do. And we can't actually sort of transcend the things I just named about the people we come from. We're like in bodies, embodied because they were in bodies and they manifested us right? Like that's what's going on. This is what I believe. The caveat I want to offer is I'm a spiritual teacher and spiritual practitioner. And I understand that I am not just this body. And I also understand that my ancestors were not just their bodies, right? They were spirits and their souls are everlasting. This is what I believe. And 
they were much more expansive than the body, than their trauma, than the things happening. So while I don't believe we can transcend the reality that's going on and how we actually came to be, which is rooted in where we're from, I do think it's important for people to remember that we also are not just our bodies. One of the reasons why we suffer is because we believe we're just these bodies and our experiences and our sensations and our desires, which causes a lot of trauma. So that is what I will say about ancestors. And finally, what I'll say about them is that, and then I'll tell you why I added prayer to my practice in the morning. I'll just say that I think more people than ever before have been asking about ancestors in spaces I'm in. Either they've asked me or they've asked someone else in this space or it's come up in practice. This is no mistake. I think there's some consciousness around the ancestral work that we need to do individually and collectively to heal back and to heal in this present moment and to create a different future for the people who will be here after us and the earth that hopefully will be here after us. Right? Like I think there's some awakening around that. And I also think there's a call from the ancestors to do some deep work to heal. Mm. The timing feels on purpose. The people being like, what's up with this ancestral work, which I've never done, you know, like that. And it's just a pattern I've noticed in so many spaces. I think it's because we can't escape our ancestors. And I also think it's a beckoning to like saying, what do you all want to do? Right. How do you want to be? What needs to be healed so we don't repeat the same pattern? What needs to be revealed so we don't repeat the same pattern? And how do we heal as living ancestors right now? And what world do we want to leave for the future mm. and future ancestors? I love that component. Yeah. So that's what I'll name about ancestors. And I came into this practice of adding prayer and the Oracle cards, divination decks, and journaling gratitude statements in a moment of crisis when I had a practice and the practice was not actually meeting the crisis I was in. I was in a lot of transition in my life. And I remember sitting at my kitchen table being like, I need something to support me in this moment. That's different than what I have done in the past. And what came to me in response to that was adding prayer to my practice, which I prayed before the practice of prayer wasn't new, but praying every day and often in a specific way. And I end my prayer the same way every day that came to me. And then like, you need some other tools. I got a book that is about manifesting different things. And that's where the gratitude statements, writing 10 a day came from and started doing that. And then, well, I didn't have as many Oracle decks as I have now, then, mm-hmm. but I do, I had some, I think I had two. And so I just started pulling a card from it each day to be like, what is this saying and how might it relate to my day? And I think this is important because I remember saying this when COVID began that we might need some different practices because the moment we're in is one we haven't faced before in this way. And you might find that what you were practicing pre-COVID and what you need to practice now are really different. And sometimes when we talk about practice, people are like, we need to do this type of practice in this way all of the time. And I actually think we need to develop some more flexibility around that to meet the moment we're in. And so I want to offer that to listeners as well. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. We can get stuck in some practices or thinking that practice looks one way. So it's really good to hear sort of intimately about your practice and what's shifted it. And the, a lot of people, I think, are interested also in gratitude statements. But sometimes I hear folks just like, 
having trouble with them or feeling like they're just repeating the same things, like grateful for my mom, grateful for my health. Is there a different way that you approach them that makes them more alive and specific in your life? I mean, what I'll say to that is I feel like we can be grateful for the same things every day. And I also think there is something about building the muscle through moving beyond. It can become a pattern to your point. Some things are on my list every day. Like I'm grateful for my dog, Jasper Mm. and his spirit and being, he's amazing. He's sitting right next to me. And often I will write, I'm grateful for the garden. I have a garden, the bees, and I have chickens, the hens, and this beautiful sanctuary that I feel like I've cultivated in so many ways, but in collaboration with the universe for sure and my ancestors. So there are usually a few, maybe three out of 10 that are the same. And then I sort of think about, well, what interactions did I have yesterday or have I had this morning that I want to be grateful for? Like this morning when I wrote a gratitude statements, I wrote something about being grateful for one of my friends. Her name is Mary Beth. I've written a gratitude statement about her before, but typically it's been connected to a group of people that I gather with monthly and have for many years. And there's a huge support system and we do rituals together. But today I wrote, I'm grateful for Mary Beth. And I sort of noticed it. I was like, oh, I wasn't consciously thinking about that, but that wants to come out and be on the paper. People want to build that muscle and move beyond. I mean, I sort of just sitting there tapping in. So what do I feel grateful for? And kind of asking myself. And then that's when I read, I'm grateful for Mary Beth. I was tapping into my intuition and what wanted to come forth. And that actually came after my meditation and after the prayer. And so I'd say, if it's feeling stale, like you're writing the same thing, you might say, well, what else am I grateful for? Even asking the question and working with the mind in that way, you might look out of the window and be like, I'm grateful for that hawk that just flew overhead, Mm. or I'm grateful for the birds chirping, or I'm grateful for it's not quite yet fall, but and the leaves haven't started changing here in North Carolina, but they will soon. I'm grateful for the different colors of the leaves and fall weather. I'm grateful for the flowers that will be in bloom during fall that are different, of course, in a lot of ways, depending on where you are geographically, than the flowers that bloom in springtime. Yeah, I'm grateful for the blue sky. If you are, I'm grateful for the rain. If that's what you love and the plants need the rain, right? I just think we can sort of expand by noticing what is beyond mm-hmm. us yeah. and tap into gratitude for that, which feels like a an essential practice, actually, and just really profound. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the order that you set up your morning is helpful as well. I find after doing meditation, more tapped in and open to seeing Mm -hmm. that might have something to do with it. Of course, we can just wake up and do gratitude, but it's also nice to Mm -hmm. just tap into that intuition and allow it to flow through. A lot of the things you mentioned there are things in our natural environment. So I think it's a nice, easy transition to asking you about your garden, your sanctuary, your bees, and what has been just developing for you and with you around being outside. Michelle, it just seems like every time you post about being outside and then so much of finding refuge is about the bees, that these Mm -hmm. are really, really important healing spaces for you. It's so interesting because during the Pisces full moon, which was this past Saturday, it was 8 p.m. I was cooking dinner. I taught all day at a training this past weekend and I, it was about dark. Somebody knocked on the door and I was kind of like, who's knocking 
on the door and I looked out a little window, but I couldn't really see. And then I opened the door and it's somebody who lives in the neighborhood. Her name is Catherine. And I've never hung out with her, although I've seen her in the neighborhood. She's thanked me for having honeybees. She's brought me vegetables from her garden that she's like, your bees pollinated and I have more squash than I've ever had before. And she's brought that over. And I see her every once in a while, not often walking in the neighborhood. And she knocked on my door because she wanted to go sit with my bees. And no one's ever asked me to come over and do that. And I thought, Catherine doesn't really know me that well. She knows, though, I have a deep relationship with these bees. She has seen the bees and likely spoken to them when they've been in her yard. And she wanted to sit and hum with the bees. And I was like, oh, this is what I want. (laughs) This is really amazing that this feels like a sanctuary for her, too. And she went back there and sat with them for about 30 minutes and hummed with them. And they each have four hives. They have different personalities for sure. And she noticed that. And then she came back to my front door and was like, thank you. And gave me a hug. And she said, maybe we can do it together sometime. And I was like, we could do that. And I love the space that I'm in. And sometimes when I post on social media, people think I live like out in the country on acres of land. And I want to name, it's a privilege, like I have a house and I am on a half acre. So I just want to name that is real. And I've had time to cultivate the earth and and a garden. And I have time to tend the honeybees and to tend the chickens, although they don't need a ton of tending, different than my plants and the bees, just in different ways. So I'll name that my proximity to power and say I'm on half an acre of land and my house is on part of that. And so I have a nice sized yard, but it's not like acres of land. And what I've been able to do with it is to have a garden. And this year I actually want to have a winter vegetable garden. I haven't really tried that in the past, but I've always had a spring summer garden. I want a garden this winter and I have my four hives and the hens and I have many different flowers. I'm not someone who understands Well, I don't actually want to claim that. I'm learning more about flowers, but I'm someone who plants things and then waits to see what they're going to look like. I'm not like, this flower goes with this flower. I don't garden in that way. It's more like, I think these go together, but I don't always know. And then it's sort of a mystery, right? And then they come up next to each other and it's really beautiful or they're too close together and I have to move them. And during my sabbatical, which I took three months off May through the end of July, I spent more time outside than I've ever been able to spend before. And I sat with my bees for almost an hour each day, watching them fly in and out of the hive as my meditation. I planted many different flowers. I moved slowly. I watched earthworms move the dirt. I pruned the flowers, which actually for some plants, it's generative. It creates more flowers. And for some reason, I was always afraid to do that before, but it's meant my bee balm is it's still blooming, which for many people in this region, it would have stopped a month, if not longer ago, but it's still blooming. So you prune and then more comes from that. I feel like I've always had a deep relationship with the natural world and having time to actually be in nature. And in large part, that was like in my yard not like hiking on a mountain, although I love that, or going to a river. I love that as well. This was like in my yard for many hours a day, I would move slowly and watch what nature was doing. And I would also regard nature as a teacher. 
So I would watch and sort of listen for what nature wanted to teach me that morning, that day, at that time. And nature is such a good teacher in that it really mirror shows us the cycle of life and death and rebirth. There are so many examples of that. It also shows us how it is in relationship. Every part of the ecosystem, every part of the natural world is in relationship with one another. And so the flowers, right, they need the sun, they need to be seated, they need the water, and the bees need the flowers for pollen and nectar. And then they take that back to their hives and they make with a nectar honey. The pollen, they make something that's called bee bread, which is food. And often they will feed their young that, the brood, some bee bread and some enzymes that only bees can make go into honey and the production of honey. It's just sort of the bees need water to take to their hives. There's a little ravine in the backyard. They need that. I believe they prefer the sun because they can be out pollinating and bringing resources back to the hive. They understand the different seasons. They're already preparing for winter now in their activities. I just say all of that because the natural world really reminds me and I think can remind us of how we are interconnected and interdependent. And I'm not separate from nature. I'm not separate from the honeybees or the dahlias that are blooming outside or any part of what is around me. We're all in each other's relations. So that's what I'll name about the natural world. Feels like it's been really both regulating and inspiring for you. And uh, I'm sharing in that. I really like how you named that you're not on these acres and acres and acres of land and how much one could do with with just an acre, half an acre. I too have gotten into gardening and sit spotting. I do a lot of just sitting and observing Mm -hmm. and you're inspiring me with the bees. I have a little nervous. (laughs) It took some learning. There was a learning curve and you Mm -hmm. had some friends that you could rely on that knew some things about beekeeping. Maybe if I do take that step, I might ask you if I can reach out to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, you can. And even if someone is living in an apartment and they don't have any access sort of to outdoor space to garden, if they want to get a houseplant, right, they can relate to the plant and notice the different cycles and nurture the plant that they have the one houseplant, if it's that, right? We can go outside and experience the natural world as well, if that's available to us. I think start where you are. There's a way we are always in relationship with nature. Like I'm looking out the window at the trees and perhaps for some people that is their access to nature. And so what does it mean to engage with that tree because you know you're in deep relationship with it? Or a bird, as I mentioned earlier, a hawk flew ever, right? Like what does it mean to notice that or the clouds in the sky, right? Or your feet, if you walk on the earth, as they touch the ground, the dirt, the grass. I want to say like, start where you are because it doesn't have to look like what I described. And I also named before I went into it, I mean, it is a luxury to have land, to have a space, to have a sanctuary, to have time. And I'm well aware that not everyone has these things. And I do think because our natural state is to be in relationship with what is around us, including like everything in nature, there's a way we can have a relationship with it, even if we're not tending the earth in the ways that we've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I totally agree with that. Uh, I have a friend who goes out on her balcony 
lives in Manhattan, 116th Street, and there's just these birds that come to visit same time every day. And she's developed a really strong relationship with them and just proof that we can do that anywhere. And that relationship does develop over time. Right. Absolutely. When they start to see it's not just a bird, it's the bird, the same bird that was here. <laughs> and it becomes more specific. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, I love that. So Michelle, I want to be respectful and aware of your time. And that loops me back to that earlier question about the importance of that sabbatical and the kind of the other measures you take to really protect your space and your time. Is that something that developed spontaneously or something that you've built over the years? What was the instinct around that and how maybe you can share some practices that you use for just keeping healthy boundaries in your life? And then I just want to ask you what's coming up next to you. I believe you have a lot of projects in the works, a lot of writing projects. So yeah, maybe both those things. And then of course, anything else that I didn't ask that you feel is important. I want to really welcome into the space. Someone just asked me this question about boundaries, similarly to the one you asked about protected space. And just a couple days ago, someone asked me this and, and I was like, I don't think I came out of the womb knowing that I would need to create protected space. I think it came through experience of either not having that space because the conditions weren't in place in my life or not having protected space or boundaries because an institution didn't want to create those because it wanted us to work all of the time and sort of die for the cause. And then I think about the culture, dominant culture and and productivity and the way it supports that, like us not having protected space. And in fact, valuing workaholism over time respite, right? Time to move away from something to then more fully enter it. This is the flow where it like, we need to sleep, right? And we need to sleep well. I don't always do this, but we need to sleep well to be able to like engage in the world in the different ways we've talked about to actually be awake to what is around us, what is happening. I feel like I learned a lot of lessons through not having space, not creating space for myself. And I want to say it's not always, depending on someone's social location and the identities they embody, the circumstances they're experiencing, like depending on those things, it's not as simple as saying practice this to protect your space, which there are many people who will say practice these three things to protect your space. And what I'll say is that it's much more nuanced than that because we live in a culture where People are having different experiences because of the identities they embody and people aren't protected, let alone their space and their time. And so we need to like know that is real and happening and that it can be a privilege to talk about something like self-care or boundaries or protected space. That said, what I will name now is that I, because it just came up the other day, is someone was doing something that was disturbing me and my peace. And I said, I'm not going to let this disturb my peace. Like this doesn't get to steal the moment of peace I'm experiencing right now. I think there's an opportunity in space for many of us as we are in a moment of peace or as we recognize we're in that moment. And that might come from a disturbance to our peace, Mm -hmm. right? But once we recognize it, that we make a commitment not to let it be disturbed. And so what I was saying in that moment was like, I am making a conscious choice 
to refocus my attention on this thing because this is bringing me peace. Be that my breath, be that I wasn't out at the honeybees when this happened, but this happens often. Be that the honeybees to bring me back because they can actually feel when I'm not at peace. Mm. And that affects their energy. They can feel us. Many animals, many beings can feel us when we're not at peace and that disturbs their peace. That is a small way that I'll say we can create a boundary is like, where do I want to put my attention? Do I want it to be on my peace or do I want it to be somewhere else? And we just can ask that question and then make a choice. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get caught up. I don't always choose peace. Sometimes I get caught up, distracted, or the moment's calling for something different. But it's just been a teacher to be like, come back to your place of peace where you feel grounded, where you can breathe. Even if it's for a moment, you take a deep breath. And the other thing I'll say about protected space and boundaries is that I am clear that in a black body, white supremacy is never going to protect me or my space or my peace by design. And so if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. I'm not suggesting that I'm doing it alone. I have many people in my life who check on me and say, how are you caring for yourself? How's your heart? What do you need? And so we can also think about in community, how do we support people as they are finding peace or trying to create that? And peace may not be the word that resonates. It's just the word that's present for me or groundedness. Like how do we support people? We can check in with them and ask, right? What do you need? How are you? All of these things feel like tools for us. So I'm not doing it in isolation, definitely doing it in community, in community that's invested in, I think about my sabbatical, community that's invested in my peace. And I'm in community with people and I'm invested in them feeling whole, feeling peaceful and having what they need to heal and be. Like this is another muscle we need to build with one another. That clarity of like, oh, White supremacy dominant culture is never going to protect us or even create peace means the peace has to come from some other place. And spiritual practice, of course, is part of this. It's such a teacher yoga around finding our inner peace. I don't mean like bypassing. I mean, finding our peace as we're in reality about what's happening and as we're responding to many of the things that you and I have spoken about today. And I hope to maintain a space where I can protect my peace and invest in others and their peace too. This is part of what I want. It's part of my prayer. That's just so beautiful, Michelle. just feel like that's a really good place to kind of wrap this. And just, I'm sitting here with you and invested in that for you. And you've been, and it just keeps coming up for me. So I'm just going to say, you know, I really appreciate the support that you've lent to me and your generosity of spirit with me. And I feel just so much that I want to support you and be one of those people that helps bring more peace into your life and you deserve it. So thank you. Thank you. Just to kind of promote you a little bit, put all your links in the show notes. You have, unless I'm missing one, you have two books out so far. I know Skill in Action and then Skill in Action had a kind of a second release. It had a second edition that came out in November and it's, if people have the first edition and they're interested in the second edition, it feels like a different book with the same theme and it's much longer and more expanded. It's just a much more expansive exploration of the themes of justice and yoga and radicalizing our practice. So 
And if people aren't familiar with it and you want to order it, make sure you get the second edition, I would say, because it's just, it's so different. And there are a lot more resources and tools in it. And then at Finding Refuge came out in July of 2021. People can find out about both of them on the my website. And it is about what we spoke about around collective grief and cultural trauma and spiritual practice and how spiritual practice can support us as we grieve and as we sort of reckon with what we've lost and why we've lost so many people and beings and our relationship with the planet. And there is a chapter about the honeybees in there as well, the natural world. And then my next book, We Heal Together, Rituals and Practices for Building Community and Connection. That comes out April 11th. It is available for pre-order. It is not yet on my website. It will be soon, but people can find that at Penguin Random House, who's the distributor for We Heal Together and Skill in Action and Finding Refuge and order it from many different places. There are links on that Penguin Random House page for We Heal Together. That's exciting. Yeah. And then I have the other book coming out in 2023. So all three of those have been published by Shambhala Publications. And I have a book that comes out August 8th, 2023, published by Beacon. And it is, I am a dismantling racism trainer as I, and have done that work for a long time, as I mentioned before. And I wrote a book about how to hold and facilitate affinity spaces for Black, Indigenous, and people of color with Beacon. And so that will come out in August. And there's anyone listening who holds space like that, who is a person of color or interested in that or interested in participating in affinity groups. It's sort of a specialty book in that way. It would be a really helpful guide and resource. And it's called A Space for Us. And it's not available for pre-order because it's still in and you you know this like it's still it takes a long oh my time gosh. when you turn in your books and when it comes out it's like a year long process I don't think people realize so it long. yeah it's so long so it will be available for pre order in early 2023 I would think but all of that will be on my website soon once those things are available and I'm working on another book now which will not come out until 2024 so people can stay tuned wow for, you have the writing that. bug. <laughs> Wow. Amazing. I'm really glad that you explained about skill in action second edition because I didn't know that. So I'm going to make sure to get the second edition Mm -hmm. and pre-order We Heal Together. And then your other book, A Space for Us, not available yet on pre-order, but we'll keep following you for news on that. I know there are a lot of people I know that are listening that would be interested in that. Oh, great. And if people want to work with you, Michelle, as a facilitator, speaker, they just go on your site? Yeah, they can find me through my site. There's a contact form and that goes to my support person and they'll reach out to me. And I am definitely calling in more keynote speeches and holding space and leading rituals and talking about so much of what we spoke about and talked about today. So my website is a great way to stay updated about events and facilitations that are upcoming and information about if you want me to come in as a dismantling racism trainer or facilitator, I facilitate many different on many different topics, actually. That's the website's a good way to, to reach out. Great. We're going to send lots of people your way. And I hope to be in your presence when you're keynote speaking or holding some rituals soon. I would really like that. So I'm going to keep my eye out for that. Is there anything that I neglected to ask you today that you feel is important? No, I feel 
complete and want to thank you for the work you have done, you are doing now and will do, and for inviting me to be a guest on your show. It's been really great to be in conversation and community with you today. It's been wonderful, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thank you. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.